The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen, and a great day to be on the radio. It is a good day. And you know, it might be a good day for you to take a little mini victory lap. I understand that the State Bar has just approved the opening of another campus. That's exactly right. I just came back from San Francisco where the Committee of Bar Examiners has approved a new accredited branch campus for our law school in Bakersfield. And it will be called the Kern County College of Law, giving us three locations now. Excellent, excellent. I only called it a mini victory lap because (laughs) I know that there's a lot of other details that need to be in place still. But great, great news, Mitch. Yeah, we hope to have it open next summer. So we'll get busy starting next week and hopefully have it ready to go by June or July next summer. Excellent. Bravo. Well, today's segment is going to feature a topic that we've talked about before a number of times uh, within the context of law enforcement. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, impairment and we're going to talk about drug recognition experts. I know that I'm I'm really looking forward to this because as you and I chatted about before the show, I have some Doubts. Is that fair enough to say? It, I read through this drug recognition expert standards, and I think I might fall some on the side of those who question whether this is science. That, okay, that's good. And you know, our guest. And now today, I know you've got an expert guest who's a police officer, and you as a district attorney, I know I'm on the other side of the fence that's here. That's right. So you, we, <laughs> we might be ganging up on you. You may be swimming upstream a little bit. But uh, yeah, our guest today is going to be Tom Page. you didn't ask me what I'm smoking. I, so, no, yeah. well, he'll, he, we'll get there. Our guest today is going to be Tom Page, and Tom is a recognized drug recognition expert. He has been very involved and teaching the techniques, and he's well-versed on the topic, including really the origin and the history behind this, Mitch. And I think Tom got his start in law enforcement in Los Angeles and then served as a police officer in Detroit. And it'll be a really, uh, really good uh, exchange that we have with Tom because he's got a good sense of history. And I wanted to just uh, hint or, or, or focus on that first because this idea of drug recognition experts really came about because of a great need by law enforcement in determining how best 
to evaluate potential impaired drivers. You know, the old school of under the influence of alcohol was really uh, kind of a routine practice. I th- yeah, and we've all seen it on the movies. Of course, none of us have actually personally experienced it on the side of the road, but we've we've seen images of it, of course, uh, where they you're asked to step out of the car, and they're the what they call, I guess, a standardized field sobriety test. That's right. And we've all seen versions of it. We did have a guest several months ago. We talked about this, and I was really happy to hear that they no longer ask you to say the alphabet backwards yeah that's that's going off script because i can't do that on any day of the week or hour of the day that's that's true even with a cup of coffee first thing in the morning let's bring in tom all right tom welcome to the program thank you very much did you hear part of the intro tom i did hear part of the info uh intro and i'd just like to make one correction i started my law enforcement career with detroit oh you did sorry Yes, and then uh, I was uh, laid off from the Detroit Police Department and then joined the Los Angeles Police Department. Okay, sorry, I got it out of order, Tom. I apologize. That's okay. okay. But, Tom, this is Mitch. Welcome to the show. Uh, You've actually been working in this area for decades, haven't you? Yes, yes. Uh, I actually started uh, uh, shortly after joining the Los Angeles Police Department in about 1985. I became involved in the, the very early stages of the development of the DRE or Drug Recognition Expert Program. So very much in the foundational stage of the uh, of that program. And Tom, in the intro, I attempted to uh, reach the issue of why the program came about. I, I'm hoping you can speak to that issue now for us. Tell us a little bit about sure. the history. Sure, well, there are a number of different factors that caused it to, to, to come about, but it was a, primarily a recognition in the 1970s. And, and I actually saw this firsthand when I was a Detroit officer is that we were occasionally encountering people who were obviously uh, were clearly impaired. Uh, clearly impaired when they were driving, clearly impaired in any kind of sobriety testing. But then their uh, their alcohol level, as measured by a breath testing device, such as a breathalyzer, was typically, or was, well, it was frequently zero, zero, or, at, uh, or was not consistent with the impairment. And so we had to try to figure out what was the actual cause of the impairment? And really, prior to the to the drug recognition expert program, we very often just let the person go. Uh, I recall actually trying to get the psychiatric evaluations of the person. Maybe they were having mental problems, uh, or that it was drugs. And uh, so we had a, a few options there. One would be to take the the people into a medical doctor for an assessment. A number of problems with that, and I think the same is true today, is that many medical doctors really don't have a a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience with people who are under the influence. But I think even more importantly than that is that we would see as law enforcement officers the person at a different point in time than the doctors would. And so by the time that we might take somebody to see a doctor, the effects of the drug, depending on what kind of drug it uh, is, may have uh, totally worn off. So that was probably the, the precipitating factor that, that led to the development. There were other things going on at the same time, and that was really the, the refinement of the standardized field sobriety testing. And, and by the way, the backwards uh, alphabet was never a part of the, <laughs> the standardized 
Good. Field sobriety test. So where where do we all have the memory of that? Is that just was you know TV and movies? Is that where we saw uh, that? I think I think that's exactly where it <laughs> came from. Yeah. Thank that's, goodness. That's, 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 yeah. Thank goodness. Correct. Every once in a while, when I was in college, I'd stand at the in the mirror before I went out and I'd practice just in case. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, that's interesting because uh, people still do that today. Maybe not the alphabet, but uh, they, they might, uh, they've been known to practice some of the balance and coordination tests before they, they get back into their cars. <laughs> you know, Tom, yeah. one of the things that I think we should do is just set out first some of the rules of engagement in terms of how jurors are uh, called upon to decide impairment cases in most states. and. Sure. I think it's important for our listeners to know, first of all, two things, and I, I always like to do a little myth-busting whenever I can, and one is that it's illegal to drive under the influence of prescription drugs because those can also cause impairment, and street drugs are also included, and of course, marijuana is also included as one of the drugs, and right. the action always centers on the ability to safely operate a motor vehicle. And, oh, right. and a, a lot of trust and faith is placed, obviously, in law enforcement officers across the nation and their ability to judge a person's ability to safely operate a motor vehicle. Uh, we also yeah. have, of course, in California, a what we call a B count in our driving under the influence, and that would be driving under the influence of a .08 or greater but it's the, the A count, the under-the-influence count, that really casts a wide net in terms of the number of uh, intoxicants that can be included there. Correct. And I would also add, you mentioned prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs, but there are also substances that aren't considered to be drugs. Uh, gasoline uh, could be uh, a drug. Uh, butane can be a drug, and there are people that would ingest those drugs. Uh, in order to uh, intoxicate themselves and, and then drive. And, of course, they would be included in that A count. And, and every state does have some variation of, of the, the A and B count, not worded the same way. But uh, I think in, in every state, uh, it's prohibited to drive under the influence of alcohol, drugs, or a combination of alcohol and drugs. But in every state does have uh, a per se level at, at a point zero eight. So that would be the B count. Good. So, Stephen, when we come back after the break, I'd like you as a former prosecutor and Tom talk about that. It, mm -hmm. it sounds to me like there was, there's an element, I'm sure it doesn't happen often, but it's not a question of intentionality, right? It's not that you're intending to drive impaired. If I were using, uh, I was in an industrial setting and, and, and breathing in all these times of intoxicating <laughs> fumes, got in my truck, was driving home and got pulled over, it's it's not whether I was intending to drive. It's whether I'm impaired, right? Isn't that the standard? Well, that, well, yeah, certainly. Uh, Tom, let's take it on after the break. That, that's we're going out okay. on a break. We'll pick that up after the break. Okay, you're listening to Great. Wagner and Winnick on the Law over the Voice America and the Biz Talk Radio Network. Our guest today is Tom Page. We'll be right back after this short break. Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? 
Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, our guest today is Tom Page, and we're talking about drug recognition experts, and those would be a group of qualified members of law enforcement that are trained and able to detect potential impairment on our roadways, and that would be in connection usually with potential impaired driving investigations. And Tom, before the break, I think... Yeah. What Mitch might have been getting at, and I never know exactly why Mitch introduces <laughs> topics all the time, <laughs> but, but um, it, in this case, I think he was almost getting to the issue of a possible defense of involuntary intoxication. If somebody, yeah. you know, inhales something that they don't know, you know, they didn't do it. In, it's not like a huffing scenario where somebody's intentionally right. inhaling. So it is a possible defense, but that's not really, you know, that's not our clear point today. Yeah, but but Tom, let, let me get you to talk about the various things you confront in terms of impairment, because I think that would really open a lot of eyes out there. Well, in terms of impairment, there's, we could say there's two broad categories of that. There's mental impairment, and then there's physical impairment, and generally those go together. But the mental impairment, sometimes called cognitive impairment, really refers to a, a, a deterioration in a person's ability to, in terms of driving, to do all the tasks, many which uh, have to be taken care of simultaneously when operating a vehicle on, on, on the roadway. So it's thinking, it's decision making, it's uh, uh, deciding uh, a step for step speed judgment, all of the different things that go into that diving. And then that's generally accompanied by a type of physical impairment, the gross motor impairment, uh, or maybe slighter. And we see that, of course, with, with uh, alcohol. We, we can see the very gross kinds of motor impairment that might be evidence how uh, uh, an intoxicated person walks on a, on a real or imaginary line. It's the staggering, the stumbling, the so-called drunk kind of uh, kind of uh, an appearance. I think what's really important, though, is, is to realize is that people that take alcohol or take the other drugs of abuse really take them not for their physical effects, not in order to have staggering gait, for instance, but they actually take those drugs in for effect on the, the central nervous system. And when I say the central nervous system, I'm talking about the brain. And so they, the, the drugs of abuse, have in common that they all affect the brain, they all affect mood, they all affect how a person feels in that, that the central nervous system. And so the drugs can have similar effects in that they all affect the central nervous system, but they can have different kinds of effects. And that very much depends on the, the, the type of substance. And then one other thing, Tom, I want to get your thoughts on this. I know that when I've okay. called experts in the past in cases, mm -hmm. when I'm putting on evidence to support impairment, uh, I would often get experts to testify that mental impairment always precedes physical impairment. I think that's an important feature and factor, too. I, I would, yeah, I would totally, totally agree with that. And, and like in my training of officers, and I'll, I'll tell them if a person is slurring their speech, I guarantee you, money back guarantee is that their 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 mood, their thinking has already been been affected. The first thing to go is those mental uh, abilities. If they're staggering, slurring, 
then uh, then that's that's really signs of more uh, gross kind of impairment or a higher level of impairment, even in the the, the, the mental quality. And the same applies to all of the other drugs too, cocaine, for example, marijuana, for for example, uh, the the opioids, so, uh, all of the drugs of abuse. And and so the. The question I'd asked about in the beginning is I get the field test, but I, I assume that the biggest challenge always is, well, where's the scientific connection? You know, you, you've made a logical argument, uh, right. but I assume in a court setting, the defense attorney is always going to challenge a couple of things, either the observing and recording of the factors on the site when the person was taken into custody, but if they get beyond that, then they must challenge on a regular basis the scientific proof that there's that connection. So how, how have you trained officers to respond to that? Yeah, well, they, they actually have, but, but not so much lately. I mean, for, for many years, we had a number of court cases uh, around the country in which the whole basis of the drug recognition expert training, uh, the drug recognition expert procedures was challenged. And it was challenged on under the Fry standard uh, about general acceptance in the relevant scientific community. It was challenged in terms of the Daubert standard. It's a little bit different. It's challenged under federal rules of evidence. So lots of different ways. That, and, and a real uh, common question that was argued in court is that, well, is this science? Uh, what scientific community does, does it uh, belong to? And courts would reach different kinds of opinions. And some would say, well, it's not really science. It's just officers doing what we've always expected officers to do. And then some other courts would really try to identify that scientific community. And uh, the results typically were, well, it's really its own sort of unique, uh, unique science, unique uh, procedures that there's really only one group of people that are charged in our society that identifying people at the at the side of the road and making that determination that are they under the influence are they impaired to drive are they safe safe to drive and then having to to make that arrest or or based on probable cause or or release release decision so of course is that well certainly we take some things from medicine we certainly take some things from the field of psychology behavioral psychology we take some things from highway safety uh, engineering lots of different aspects but it's really sort of its own own unique unique kind of field uh, the the the, ch the typical challenge in court these days is not really so much on the procedures but did the officer, first of all, have the proper training? Did they complete the proper training? Has that been documented? Have they maintained their, their, their skill? Are there a continuing education for, uh, requirement? And did the officer uh, vary the procedures that they were taught, taught to use? And, and how would that affect the, their, the ultimate the weight of, of their, their opinion? And that's primarily where the challenge is go to these days in terms of the dairy. And I can just add one thing, though. We're, we're really talking about a, a fairly small number of officers that are uh, full drug recognition experts. But the current count is about 9,000 in the entire United States, and that's out of about 700,000 state, state officers. So it, it's a, a very select group of officers. 
officers that, that get this training to begin with. Well, so uh, two questions. The first one is, I, I think it, it almost goes without saying that the advent and use of dash cams and body cams for police yeah. must just be a tremendous help in proving up these kind of cases. Oh, I don't... If, if, if all the drugs had effects like the drug alcohol, then I, then I would agree with you. Uh-huh. But a drug like marijuana is, is a really good example. You, you don't really... Tom, Tom, hold the thought on marijuana. When we come back, let's pick that topic up. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law, and our topic today is the role of a drug recognition expert. We're talking about impaired driving, but not alcohol-impaired driving. How can other drugs be detected? And our guest today is Tom Page. We'll be right back after this short break. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy LaRiviere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you're a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, sba.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney.
sba.gov. Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Back to Wagner and Winnick on the law. Our guest today is Tom Page, and we're talking about impaired driving, but not alcohol-impaired driving, impaired driving caused by other drugs. And Tom, uh, before the break, I think we did get the uh, term marijuana mixed into our dialogue, and Mitch had asked you, Mitch asked you about uh, body cams and dash cams. And, and how they yeah. may have actually improved or made, I, I guess, Mitch, your point was that it may have highlighted signs of impairment. Right? Well, well, it seems to me Tom's point is that he's training individuals to have observation techniques through a procedure that they could then prove up in court. And so if you're relying on the, the officer's observation and judgments based on observation, it would just seem natural Got that it. a camera really helps that but but tom and then tom, the you, point yeah, yeah so tom, great fin- for alcohol but maybe not so much for marijuana yeah tom finish up oh, well, right well the kind of impairment we see with uh, marijuana can be very very different than that that with with alcohol certainly they both have mental impairment but marijuana typically isn't going to have the staggering gait the the inability to, to walk uh, to stay erect that we might see with alcohol so the impairment doesn't necessarily show up as well as, as it does with alcohol. Uh, it's more of a challenge to elicit and document a kind of mental uh, impairment. One of the other interesting things with, with marijuana is also is that studies have shown 
is that when somebody's being challenged by a police officer, and by that I mean officers administering field sobriety tests at, at roadside, that the person might be able to get it together, so to speak, for uh, a period of, of time. It's when they're not challenged with when they're out there driving by the, by themselves, is that when we are more likely to see the food impairment in terms of driving. So there's lots of challenges with, with marijuana. Uh, so your point, I think, I think what's really interesting, and, and we had a guest on before that talked about, and it's not really just marijuana as we think about it from the old Cheech and Chong movies where they roll down the window and there's this giant puff of smoke. It's really cannabis, right. THC, and all the other products that can be edibles and tinctures and you know vapes that, that aren't going to generate the right. kind of obvious signs that you've talked about had been used for alcohol for all these years. Right, right, exactly. And that, you know, the, the standardized field sobriety test looks for more than just balance and coordination things. It does look for other things in terms of the eyes. It certainly looks for the uh, person's ability to shift attention or to divide one's attention between uh, various kinds of things. But you know, one of the real, real challenges with really all of the drugs, particularly marijuana, is that we, we try to apply what we know about alcohol, such as establishing a level, a point zero eight level. And we try to apply that to the non-alcohol drugs. And uh, for fear of dating myself, the old $64,000 question is, and I've received this from prosecutors that judges literally ask me, is that, well, what's the equivalent in terms of marijuana? How much marijuana can you have to be equivalently uh, impaired to uh, a point zero eight? And it's really an unanswerable kind of a kind of a question. Is that the drug is just all of the drugs, one in particular, are very different than the, the drug alcohol. Yeah, you know, Tom. I'm, have, glad, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, Tom. I'm glad you mentioned that because the important factor here is that. We judge impairment by law at the time of driving. And I think what you're speaking to now is the hurdles and the obstacles that are present in actually establishing a, you're getting to the issue of maybe a per se or a threshold type limit, right? Correct. And what, what's the movement? What do you see trend-wise? I mean, will there come a time when we're well, going to get a per se? What do you think? Well, I, I, there are places that have adopted per se levels. Uh, I was just recently in the state of Colorado with the recreational marijuana, and, and they've established a five nanogram per milliliter of blood level. Now, now a nanogram is billionth of a gram. So they say that, that it's basically a rebuttable presumption if the person has five nanograms uh, Per milliliter of, of blood of THC in, in, in their, their, their blood. So the studies have shown is that the impairment is no different between five nanograms and one nanogram. And one of the really challenging things with marijuana is that as the level of THC is dropping in one's blood, the impairment is increasing. And why is that? Well, the reason that that's occurring is that THC is lipophilic, which means it's like fat. So it attaches to the brain. So it may not be in the blood, but it's in the brain. And alcohol does that. Most of the other drugs don't do that. And so that just gives you an idea of one of the real, real challenges of marijuana. So legislatures are just to serve their, their own unique 
reasons, have tried to come up with, with levels. And the, at a conference, I, I was just that with the, about a thousand drug recognition experts around the, the country, around the world for that matter. But I think the, the overall consensus was that impairment is impairment. We can't put a number on impairment with these drugs, particular marijuana that we can uh, with alcohol. So and it, it sounds like, Tom, that we're, we're really not moving to having a roadside breathalyzer for drugs of this type either, are we? Well, there, there's a lot of talk of that. Uh, there has been for, for quite a while. Senator Schumer of New York a few years ago said, that's what we need. We need a breathalyzer for drugs at, at, at the roadside. Uh, those, if we do have those kinds of devices, that they would really be good maybe to, for, to detect the presence. And presence doesn't necessarily mean impairment, particularly with drugs like, like marijuana when we have uh, so-called medical marijuana. More states are, are making it illegal. And then we also have prescription drugs. I mean, the presence of alprazolam or, or, or Xanax. The devices might be able to detect that. The person may be using it legitimately. They might be using it and they're not impaired by it. So it, it's the the continuous challenge of presence versus the impairment, and they're not the same thing. And Tom, um, can you talk a little bit about the mechanics of the DRE training? What what are the steps? I mean, we've heard about there being twelve type steps or detection steps or yes. a protocol to it. Can you speak to that issue? Yeah, it's the, the procedure itself, and the officers go through a very, very rigorous training. The selection is very rigorous. The classroom training is, is, is two weeks and multiple testing. In fact, we've had attorneys go through it and compare the final exam to passing the, 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 uh, the bar exam. So it's a, it's a very, very strenuous, followed by field training it, itself. But the procedure is, is the so-called 12-step program. And uh, as as one, I think now, Tom, there must be a little. Wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta break in it. There has to be a little irony in the fact that your recognition program for impairment is a twelve-step program. Really, well, you couldn't have had it be eleven. <laughs> well, you know, as one prosecutor once said, the interesting thing is they both start off with you got a problem with alcohol. You see, because if the O eight, if the alcohol level doesn't match the the impairment, and that's when we start to think think drugs. Uh, yes, uh, we we thought about that, but. Our logo has already been designed. And not about <laughs> can't walk it back well, now. Okay. Can't, can't walk it back now. But it, it starts with alcohol, what we know about alcohol, because alcohol, unlike the other drugs, if we have, say, a person that's a point two zero, that we have a pretty predictable type of impairment. And so if the person's impairment isn't consistent, and I would add consistent in terms of degree and their type, with what we know about the alcohol level, then we start thinking, could there be other drugs? So, uh, the, the steps include any, uh, an evaluation of the person's vital signs. Officers are trained to use uh, a blood pressure cuff, technically known as the signal manometer. They take uh, pulse rate three times. They take temperature. They look at the eyes in very, very controlled kinds of uh, settings. I'm looking at how the pupils react uh, to to, uh, to light. They look at muscle tone, uh, eye movement, uh, a number of, of different things. That and they collect all their evidence, if you will. They collect do all their documentation, 
And then they, they interpret that in terms of, is the person impaired? Is the person impaired by drugs? And if so, then what type of drug or drugs? Multiple drug use, also called polydrug use, is very, very much the rule. And the last step is toxicology. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that the, the last thing that's done is that the officer actually gets a blood sample or uh, a urine sample or some other kind of physical assessment. It means that the decision of the officer that this person's arrested and is going to be at least uh, registered uh, in the criminal justice system. Tom, we're coming, up, we're coming up on a break, so I'm going to stop you there. When we come back, though, let's okay. pick back up on the mechanics of the test and this idea okay. of polyuse, all right? And I also want to talk about okay. where this testing is done when yes, we come back. Yes, yes, the environs. Good point. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. Our guest today is drug recognition expert Tom Page. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a, a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go. So it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, 
deceptive practices or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at ftc.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our guest today is Tom Page, and we're talking about the topic of the role of a drug recognition expert and uh, various forms of impaired driving. And Tom, before the break, uh, you were talking about the mechanics and the way officers are trained to detect potential drug impairment. Um, Why don't you continue a little bit on that, and then we want to move into what you call poly use or mixed drug use. Polydrug use, yes. Uh, the, the DRE procedure is a 12-step procedure, but it's typically done post-arrest. And that what that means is that the, the determination that the person was impaired is generally made by a different officer at roadside. So they see the drive A, they have personal contact, they administer standardized field sobriety testing, and at that point they, they may place the person under arrest. Typically, at the the station, then they're going to be given an evidentiary breath test. And if that breath test isn't consistent with the degree and or type of impairment, that's when a drug recognition expert uh, gets involved. So typically, the evaluation classically is done in in a controlled environment rather than a roadside. And by controlled environment, I typically would mean a, a police station. But certainly depending on the circumstances, could be at a hospital, could be at some other kind of a, a, a facility. But it's, it's a very, uh, as we would call it, a systematic and standardized. It's, it's a very logical way 
of assessing the, the person's uh, uh, balance coordination, the vital signs, all the other indicators that can tell us that the person is under the influence. But I, I want to point out one very, very important thing is that, that in order to determine that somebody's under the influence of drug or drugs, is that we need to make sure that there's not a medical condition that's causing it. And our drug record offices very regularly intercede, stop an assessment and say, we need some medical attention here because the reason that we might be saying or hearing slurred speech, for instance, or the person might be having an impaired gait can be because of a very serious medical condition. A stroke would be one example of that. And in fact, we teach the officers whenever they see one side of the body going something different than the other side. And that might mean that one pupil dilated and the other one not. Uh, one person being able to touch their right finger to the tip of their nose but not their left is that we start to look for medical conditions. And that's a very, very important part of, of training. I'm glad you mentioned that, Tom. That's really important because the officers looking to both either rule in or rule out a medical issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And Tom, I think the other thing that, that yeah. it really brings to the point is that all of this helps in that controlled environment in helping make the determination you've just described, but it really hasn't changed what the, the talent and skill level of the officer on the roadside to still do that initial assessment because that, that really hasn't changed that much, has it? Uh, right. The, the, you're absolutely right. It's the same standardized field sobriety test that we've been using really since the, 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 the late 1980s. Certainly there's been refinement, but at the same time, there's been some additional training that officers are now getting about drugs, about some of the physical manifestations of, of drug impairment. And we, we get them that training in order to encourage them to request the assistance of a drug recognition uh, expert. So let me ask you another couple things that go along with this sure. this po the controlled environment testing. I, yeah. I've read some things that in some cases some of these drugs don't uh, show up in the blood in the same level that you'd like to measure. Or when uh, the example Steve and I were just chatting at during the break. Let, let's say I'm in a, a pain management program because of a serious injury that I've had for a long time. And so I'm on sure. a regular... Uh, painkiller. It might be Oxycontin or Vicodin or something. So my, Correct. it's going to be in my body, and and I, I assume that at some level my tolerance level goes up, and I might be able to have that level of drug proven by toxicology, and yet have a rebuttable presumption that I that I'm not impaired with it. Correct. Well, that, that's correct, but we're not randomly taking blood samples at roadside either, though. So that, that the even taking of a sample necessarily follows officers' observations, uh, usually yeah. observations of the driving. That's a great point. So it really goes back to the roadside observation of the officer at the beginning, that they saw a, a series of activities that gave them a right. reason to believe there was impaired driving. And you know, Tom, in, a, in an odd way, I was just going to add that it goes back to what I call old school detection. You know, ultimately, even with the advent of the DRE program and the means by which we can test for impairment, can the person safely operate a motor vehicle? Yes or no? 
that's very much is the case. And I don't see anything coming along that's going to replace those decisions that are made by a well-trained officer at at, at roadside. Tom, we're all the different. We're, sorry to interrupt, Tom, but we're, we're coming to the close, and I wanted to make sure that you can share with our listeners, where can they get information about potential drug impairment, and where can they learn more about what you do? A lot of times the, the, the local police department uh, will have drug recognition expert officers, and very frequently is that those officers are made available to community groups, uh, in order to discuss the, the effects of drugs. So I would really start with local, and in California, certainly the California Highway Patrol, uh, which is statewide jurisdiction, would be a very, very good good place, uh, good place to start. And if somebody's interested about the DRE training and how you're training officers, where would they find that? Uh, they can find that, again, through the California Highway Patrol in, in California. But every state, now every the United States of all 50 have programs uh, that train officers and drug recognition experts and those are always headquartered or, or monitored by the state's office of highway safety sometimes called office of traffic safety or governor's office of highway safety but they are the ones that typically administer those, those programs and they can uh uh, put the officers in contact with the right people. And then, Tom, uh, before we let you go, you had mentioned that there's yes. uniformity throughout the jurisdictions, I assume from state to state, because you're well-traveled and you've been around. Yes. Uh, there is yes. consistency, correct? There is consistency, yes, in the training uh, and in the procedures, and it's not even just the United States. Canada, uh, they don't give Miranda rights, uh, but uh, the other than that, uh, it's, it's very much the same thing. The U.K., Hong Kong, uh, some other places. Thanks, have Tom, for, for your time. We're going out. Uh, we greatly okay. appreciate your participating. We hope, we hope you'll do it again. Thank you. Well, Stephen, a great selection. It was great to have Tom Page on our show. As always, we want to remind folks that you can hear a replay of today's show at wagnerandwinnick.com or voiceamerica.com, where you can hear us on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, please remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.